You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you very much. Those were some fabulous readings, and I thought it was really interesting to see the way each of you used the elements of the fantastic in so many interesting and different ways. Each of them, I think each of you really grounded your stuff in a very different real event, and then we had these intrusions of the fantastic in in all of them. So uh, let's talk a little bit about the way you guys first Bring us into a world that we can glom onto in some way and then disrupt that world with something that's really weird and in, I think, all cases, pretty darn upsetting. Roz? Well, one of the things I'm trying to do in... I should explain that Rhapsody of Blood is, in fact, a book of two halves. I mean, it's four parts, but there are two storylines. One is about Mara, the Huntress this eternal uh, protector of the weak against the strong, against people who become gods through the rituals of blood. And the other is about Emma, a contemporary woman who Mara almost casually saves, uh, who finds herself recruited by unknown forces to be a sort of fixer in the magical world without any powers, except being incredibly arrogant and incredibly smart. I've tried to ground it in the real world, but with the difference that Mara, who's constantly dealing with real figures like Alastair, Cro- Alastair Crowley um, in, that, in that prologue, um, like Montezuma and Cortez in another section of this first volume, like in volume two, uh, Robespierre and Saint-Just, um, she is the disruptive element in a sense because she's the viewpoint character um, people said, have asked me, why, why do you, did you do it that way round? Because Emma, the contemporary person that we would expect to know and know from the inside, um, is a third person char- character. And I said, it's because Mara is 7,000 years old and incredibly powerful and someone who regularly talks to and often kills gods. <laughs> <laughs> How are we going to believe her except from inside? She's got a, 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 she's like a black hole. She's got a center of gravity in her. Yeah, and it was very interesting realizing that in order to write her, I had to completely sell her from the first moment. Um, but again, I went and looked at a lot of photographs of Kefalu, uh, where Crowley was living in 1926. Um, I studied the street map of this small Sicilian town, so I knew where everything was. Um, and that's, this took five minutes, thanks to the wonders of the internet. Um, I'm a, I won't say I'm a thorough researcher, but there are certain sorts of things I like to look at, because once you know what certain things look like, you can intrude on them. I'm, I'm, I'm a great believer in street maps. <laughs> Cindy, talk about, because you create a a really rich historical setting, and then, again, it gets disrupted by 
some really rockin' monsters. I, I, I dig your monsters. Thank you so much for creating those. Um, I think I write very straightforward fantasy, but the fact that it's um, Chinese-inspired, it's kind of unfamiliar to some people, and so it's not an automatic given that you're familiar with the world, like something that you would um, be used to reading Tolkien-esque, more Western-based fantasy. So that might be something new to the reader, and then at the same time, I'm creating, you know, creatures and myth and being based on, inspired by things that are also unfamiliar. But to me, the most fantastic speculative fiction is always based on the human experience. I mean, any book that we read will always identify with whoever the hero or heroine are because of their feelings and their wants and their desires and whatever it may be. So Eileen's uh, magical power, which I didn't go into, is that she is able to latch onto others people's, other people's spirits, their souls, and in the beginning she just hears thoughts, and in the end she's able to basically possess them. <laughs> um, mm -hmm. And so, I mean, but it's strange, it's out of, out of the ordinary, but her obvious feelings for Chen Yong and the kind of awkward crush that's going on between them because it's kind of a first for them romance, I mean, that is universal. And um, that, I mean, I think that speaks, you know, just kind of the human experience and relationships and things like that. And I think that no matter how fantastic we're writing about characters and if they're elves or orcs or whatever we decide to create, they're gods or immortals, they still want things and they still love and they still hate and they feel jealousy. And we can always relate to that. So that's what I enjoy about writing fantasy is a human experience and then throwing in crazy shit. <laughs> <laughs> well, you're ace at that. <laughs> Melinda, you you uh, absolutely capture the universal experience of waiting in an airport. <laughs> <laughs> I've lived that experience. <laughs> and then you, you toss in this, this ringer, which is really ominous. A and I loved your sense of, and we were talking about this earlier, this kind of foreboding gloom. When those birds fall, we know just the whole world is <laughs> gone to hell in a handbasket. <laughs> That's right. Anytime you see dead birds, that's what you'll be thinking from now on. <laughs> but you know, um, something that Holly Black once said really resonated with me. I think she said that when writing <coughs> fantasy um, or science fiction, you know, when the real world is really real, that's when the fantastic also becomes really real. And I think that is so right because when the details of everyday life are just on, then when something crazy happens, you kind of buy it more, I think. If 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 the everyday details are off and that you don't you're not really convinced about the existence of this character and their life and their world, then when something fantastic happens, you're not gonna you're not gonna buy it. So I really love grounding the crazy stuff in <laughs> in the real. You know, that's fun. Mm. It's it's one of the really interesting things about writing, as I do some of the time, historical fantasy. It's the wonderful bonuses you get by not cheating, mm -hmm. by knowing who was where when. Um, in, in, again, in, in book two. Uh, sorry, again in book two, um, I was describing the deathbed of Voltaire, and I discovered that he was visited by Talleyrand as a young priest oh. while he was on his deathbed. So I got to write that scene. But then I just checked Talleyrand's whereabouts at various points. 
and realized that he, he was in the right place at the right time to do some very important exposition. And I got that by not cheating. And sometimes, well, you can work around reality. I mean, again, in book two, I'm telling you about book two because that <laughs> means I'm not spoiling book one and you'll have forgotten by the time book two comes out. Um, I found out to my incredible irritation that Gibbon, the guy who wrote The Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire, had died several months before I needed him. Oh. And I thought, well, it's lucky I'm writing in a universe in which there are ghosts, isn't it? <laughs> That's great. <laughs> Uh, Cindy, <clears throat> I'd like you to talk a little bit. Um, one of the things that made your reading so vivid was the way you described uh, the monsters. And, and I think this this matters. This is really important. When you're describing the unusual, you have to be really grounded and make it very intense. Uh, as you were doing this, um, did you do you like block, do you dream this, block this out? How, how did you go about... Uh, creating those really creepy ghouls. Thank you very much. Um, my monsters and demons, and I love all of those things um, in my writing, some I make up, so the sea shifters I made up, um, but some are based on actual Chinese mythology like the serpent demon, which is kind of a seductress, succubus type. Um, that's always a beautiful woman and then morphs into a giant snake to kill you know, the men that she's with. Um, I think in my writing, I'm a very intuitive writer, and um, I think senses are very important. I'm also a Chinese brush artist, so I tend to be very visual. So when I write, um, it's kind of like a little movie in my head, and I try to convey what I see and what I feel and what I you know, hear and the all the senses as much as I could, as I can, into the scene. And that's basically how I approach novel writing. Um, it always seems lacking compared to what's in my head, but um, I think writers try their best. Um, and I think that senses are powerful, and I'm very visual, so I think that I've had people tell me that my books are very visual when they read it, and that's a, that's a great compliment to me. <laughs> well, I'm also a foodie, so Eileen is a foodie, and you know I get angry tweets all the time, like at 11 p.m., I'm reading Silver Phoenix and I want Chinese food, I'm so hungry. So I like, I totally. Clearly she's not, sorry. <laughs> I think it needs a little warning because it's not something like Cheetos will work. No, Cheetos won't work. You actually want dumplings and, you know, chow mein and rice. And so um, I thought that that was an interesting way. I think that food's very important to world building as well, and especially for my character who does like to eat and she's traveling. When she doesn't want to eat, you know that something is wrong. So I mean, you can use that. You know, I mean, it's part of her character. So I'm sorry for everyone that's hungry, but Chinatown's closed. So. <laughs> well, you know, too. Um, obviously, I'm sitting up here with three lovely women, and and you have these great uh, visions from within women's viewpoints. And I'd like you to just talk about uh, crafting that. I just talked to uh, Juno Diaz. Uh, yesterday, and he was talking about how utterly men absolutely do not get women. <laughs> how no matter how hard we try, it's just boom, boom, boom. So, so these books are are very instructive for us. Please explain uh, how you go about 
crafting this. Oh, that's a good dumbfounded looks. I like that. You have a, a feminist uh, tract, uh, according to one of your uh, critics. Um, so, so I'm told. Um, what I essentially did was... Um, I'm not very good at making up viewpoint characters. What I do is 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 take an aspect of myself and run with it. So, um, I wanted to write two heroines. So, um, Emma is the side of myself that's horribly clever. In fact, she's much cleverer than I am, and hor which is easy when she you're writing a third person character because it's. It's not easy to read, write someone who's cleverer than you. But she has a lot of my insecurities about class, and she secretly thinks that she's smart, the, always the smartest person in the room. And I'm not sure that's particularly a, you know, a feminist point. It's just, you know. <laughs> um, and Mara, um, I have a terrible confession to make. I'm a little bit of a name dropper. <laughs> Notice the laughs from people who actually know me. And a lot of what I've done with Mara is just write someone who has known almost everyone significant in the whole of human history and legend. <laughs> and write what you know. And I, 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 I write name dropping. I, I know name dropping. So, um, and I know um, being completely pig-headed and quixotic in political affairs. So I gave Mara that aspect, and that's what you know. You, you know, I, I, know, I, I know myself, and that's all I know. Melinda. Your character is very contemporary, <clears throat> and you know she reflects you know a lot of the kind of the insecurities and the fears of, of many people that I know. So talk a little bit about creating that kind of character and then uh, immersing her in a world that's uh, going to hell faster than even our world is going in. That's an accomplishment. <laughs> <laughs> Well, the main character of uh, Adaptation is a 17-year-old girl named Reese Holloway. And I created her because I needed a character to put in this story that I had in my head. I'm not really a... I'm, well, that's not true. I was going to say I'm not a character-driven writer, but sometimes characters arrive that do try to drive the story, and then I have to stop them. But the main character was not that kind of character. I, I needed her to do things because she was in this story. And I didn't really know why until I'd written the entire first draft of the book. And so I put her through the motions and I, I really didn't understand who she was. And it wasn't until I, I, had, I started revising and I had to really work through the reasons for what, why she did what she did that I started to fully understand her as a character. She was a very, very slow reveal to me. And that is partly because she is a character who um, doesn't really understand herself. And the point of the story is for her to understand herself. It's a coming-of-age novel. I mean, it's a young adult. So I've written other characters who started off knowing a lot about themselves and being very, you know, forthright. And 
Reese kind of hid a lot of things from herself. She doesn't really like having big feelings. Mm -hmm. (laughs) She kind of tries to shut them down. And in a book where there are a lot of big feelings, this can be a very frustrating experience to have as a writer. (laughs) So getting to know her was a very long process. But I, I, you know, ultimately I feel like I did get to know her and... Um, there are two books, and so the second book was much, much easier mm-hmm. to write because <laughs> by then I knew, I knew her. So, uh, Cindy, you you are on your second book, aren't you? Uh, yes, this was the second book. So, so talk about uh, <clears throat> creating your historical character, and mm-hmm. you know when you're doing this, you want to have something that somebody can relate to mm-hmm. who lives in contemporary America. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> Yet you want it to uh, ring authentic to the period you're creating it mm-hmm. for. Mm-hmm. So talk about doing that kind of balancing act where you kind of it's you know navigating between the sirens of yesterday and today. Mm-hmm. Well, I think that I'm I'm actually a very plot driven writer naturally, and um, I think that character like for Melinda it doesn't come first, and I had to write the novel first before I really got to know Eileen. And like Melinda, the second book was a lot easier for me um, as far as knowing the character. But I think that, as I said before, you know, this world might seem more fantastic because it's not what you're familiar with, or maybe very familiar because you might have, you know, read, you know, like manga or like watched, you know, certain shows or movies and it's something that you enjoy. But um, I think it's just all about it is coming of age. It's about questioning your own identity. It's about um, whether to obey your parents, um, to listen to the culture. I mean, it, any teenager and even in our 20s and 30s, we're constantly um, changing and our identity is constantly changes and we get to know ourselves as we grow because I think that I think that it's such a fantastic time as a teen because it's only beginning. And um, even in your 20s, I think you're still trying to find out who you truly are. So I think any person, man, woman, um, you know, doesn't matter. You can read a character and really identify with that. And I think that, you know, Eileen's fears about leaving home for the first time and, you know, meeting cute boys for the first time, being on her own. Um, you know, meeting actual gods and immortals and, you know, saying, holy yeah, shit, this when is... when I met a god, it was... <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you know, like, you know, in your face about religion and your beliefs and having beliefs turned and, you know, realizing that maybe I was right or wrong all along. I mean, that's what we deal with on a daily basis. So I think that's how I kind of ground the reader, even if it is all fantastic action. I think it's kind of an experience that we kind of... It's a metaphor. Uh, that's why I love fantasy. It's a metaphor. So, oh, <coughs> Roz and I were talking about this earlier yeah. about <coughs> externalize the 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 joy uh, that uh, the genre offers is to externalize all these kind of things that are really difficult to talk about. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it's hard to discuss. We probably don't want to discuss it. Mm-hmm. There are subjects that are just, if you were to just straight out say, this is about They're that. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. somebody would go, oh, I don't yeah. want to read that. Yeah. <laughs> but if you say, oh, it's about monsters, and, mm-hmm. yeah. and, or, or, it's about, yeah. or it's about the end of the world, or mm-hmm. it's about meeting Aleister Crowley and gods, then so that that's great. And you can kind of sneak that stuff in mm-hmm. under, under the under the... Hood. Yeah. Yeah. And it's it's also that if you have positions, if you have a lot of things you believe in, mm-hmm. 
you don't have to write them because they will they will come through you know you write yeah. and particularly if you're writing the fantastic mm -hmm. um the fantastic it's as i i was comparing it earlier to i i'm i'm a poet and i write a lot of sonnets and the form does the thinking for you yeah. <laughs> mm -hmm. well it's like in your uh story where the 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 sea shifters mm -hmm. assume the uh appearance of those that uh their victims loved yeah. and i think that uh an analogous thing happens when a writer is writing who enjoys fantastic fiction and likes the knows the genre and likes the genre and says i'm going to write a, a piece of genre fiction uh, <clears throat> the stuff that they're interested in is going to manifest itself within their their literature as monsters, apocalypses, or Aleister Crowley. That's true. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I mean, in one of the Emma sections, Emma ha finds herself having to, a lot to do with, with elves and vampires. Now, I happen to think that both elves and vampires are horribly over, overdone, <laughs> overused, uh, and, um, but one of the reasons I don't like elves and vampires is that as far as I'm concerned, and as far as Emma's concerned, they're both two slightly different forms of unpleasant posh people. And <laughs> you, I mean, a couple of people who've written about that section have said, well, this is Ros having a go at bankers. And I said, well, yes, but I wrote most of that section before the financial crisis. <laughs> Melinda, you're dealing with uh, the everyday world and the, the, the real world, and, and uh, you seem to be having maybe a little bit too much fun uh, taking it down. Uh, was that, was that uh, part of your strategy to just uh, say, you know, I'm kind of tired of everything? Oh, no. I mean, I think there's a big trend right now in YA, especially for post-apocalyptic and dystopian novels. But I really think of this as pre-apocalyptic. <laughs> okay, good. <laughs> you know, like, the end is not really calm. Let's, let, let's try and prevent the end. <laughs> That's what I like to write about. You know, when, when Buffy is always, you know, what, what did she say? When the apocalypse comes, beep me. Right? So this is, we're waiting for the apocalypse. It has not quite arrived yet. <laughs> or, or as Stanislaw Lem suggested, it's already arrived. It's the pericolypse. It's already arrived. It's already happened. It's done. We're done. We're just waiting to notice it. Maybe. Now, uh, uh, Cindy, one of the things that I think was, was so uh, powerful about your work was the, the um, environment and the weather and your descriptions of this ship and I'd like you to just talk about that kind of a lot of a lot of research, I would think, or how much of that is research mm -hmm. and how much when does research and I'd like all of you to talk about this. Uh, when does research become an impediment, mm -hmm. uh, either because you just want to do research mm -hmm. or because it uh, stops the imaginative process? Mm -hmm. That's a great question. It's very applicable because um, I did most of my research for the Kingdom of Sha um, with you know beautiful, gorgeous, giant coffee books of China and landscape and architecture and clothing and reading on you know women and you know the culture and what was expected to them of them you know back in 
you know, hundreds of years ago. And that was a way to ground me in what I wanted to convey. And I think most writers will admit that they probably don't use, you know, maybe 20%. If you dump everything you ever learned, it'll just be like a big wiki thing and it wouldn't be very interesting to read, but it's for the writer herself to kind of know what kind of world she's imagining and to use words to create it. But when I first, Silver Phoenix is my first novel, so I had no idea what I was doing. <laughs> and um, so I did research, and research is great in that it kind of fires up the imagination, but research is also a way to stop you dead with fear or to overwhelm you with information. And I stopped with Silver Phoenix 40 pages in because all I could think of was, oh, I need 50,000 more words. Holy shit, I've never written that much in my entire life. And also, I was trying to write a historical and, you know, I was talking to my mom's housemate who is from China and explaining to her the story. And, you know, I'm like, oh, she's 17 and her father's a scholar and she's going out to the world. And, she, and she's like, no, no, no. <laughs> she would be married. Why is she going out to the world and chaperoned? <laughs> and her feet would be bound. Why is she hobbling down the road? And then, you know, she's like, this is not, no, she, sa she, she said to me, she's like, why don't you write about an American boy who takes a ship to China? And I was like, I don't want to write about an American boy. I want to write about a Chinese girl. And so it was just so fascinating to me that she is from China. And she's like, this is impossible. You're doing crazy stuff. And so I said, you know what? You know, I realize that I'm not writing a historical. I'm a fantasy. I love fantasy. That is my first love. And I am not being Lisa C. You know, that is not what I was trying to attempt. And I allowed myself to kind of, you know, take the, the fantastic and the lore and then also make up things that allowed for me to create my own world, which is what all fantasy writers often do, unless they're writing a, you know, a straight historical, they will take something that inspires them and then kind of twist it for their own you know, fantasy world, and that's what I did, because I, I could not write what I wanted to write if I were to try and to be like very, very historical. So it's not a historical fantasy, definitely not. So that's why I say it's inspired by ancient China. Uh, I'm reliably told that writers lie. <laughs> we lie well. <laughs> that's that's what makes it worth reading. Um, well, I totally love research. I probably love it too much because I'm a recovering academic. So I um, I love research, and this book was so fun to research because it was very much inspired by my previous obsession with the X Files. So I read all sorts of completely crazy stuff on the internet about conspiracy theories, and it was so much fun. I mean, people believe some crazy, crazy stuff. Like, you don't have to make it up. Like, I remember I had this whole plot going on in my head about what this book was about. I called my brother, to whom the book is dedicated, because he is a giant conspiracy uh, fan. So I called him up, I was like, so this is what I was thinking for my book, and he's like, that's this theory over here on this website. <laughs> Somebody's already come up with that. So I went to this website, and yes, they had my plot right there. And I thought, okay, I'm not going to do that, because someone is going to think that I stole it from them. <laughs> so there is a lot of crazy, crazy research out there that I mean, you can get sucked into, but I just, I think it's really, really fun. And then you get on these tangents and I started reading about, you know, string theory and quantum mechanics and none of this stuff is actually relevant, but it just, it's, you start down one 
it's like a rabbit hole and you can go deeper and deeper and deeper and you realize there's so many layers you can add to this book except you have a deadline and it's like a week and a half from now literally i have a deadline a week and a half from now so <laughs> at some point you have to stop <laughs> i have one of the ideal jobs i'm a publisher's reader which means that for the last 30 years i've had very little control on most of what I spend my time reading, particularly in the way of nonfiction, which means I'm constantly on a weekly basis having to assimilate vast amounts of information and talk about it as if I knew, as if I knew because I've got to decide on which books get published, help decide. And it's meant that um, Rhapsody of Blood is, though I've researched a lot of specific details, it's not based so much on research as just 30 years of random shit that's been pumped into my brain without my control. You know, you all have really nice uh, prose styles and very different prose mm -hmm. styles. Um, <clears throat> so... Uh, uh, I'd like you each also to talk about that. Cindy, your pro style was, was it somehow really appropriate to, it was kind of the, the right level of ornamentation, not too much, mm -hmm. but enough to kind of put us into this, this period. And I, I really like that. Is this a product, does this pour off the tip of your pen? Uh, well, I think that I really found my stride with prose and voice in Fury of the Phoenix. I feel that um, I was a little bit more removed and distant in Silver Phoenix. I don't, I don't feel like I was in the characters' head, heads as well because I didn't know them as well, and also because I was just—it was my first novel, and I was really finding my stride um, in how I am voice-wise as a writer. Um, I don't know what to say about my prose style. I mean, I just—I write how I write. Um, this year, actually, I wrote my first kind of contemporary short story where I didn't have to write kind of a historical feel to it. And that was a lot of fun. It was fun to be modern. It was set in Taipei in the future, but kind of very recognizable as our world. And so it was something that was different. And um, Was it easier or harder? Um, I think that it would be harder at no novel length. It was the first short story I had written since a teenager. Um, so it was just a lot of fun. I did it in first person and, you know, coming from being a fantasy reader, you know, third person is usually, third person past is a favorite and that's what I write in. But um, in the short story, I did it in first person from a boy's perspective and it was more immediate. Um, it was kind of quicker paced and it was fun to kind of like play with the voice and do something different. Um, I think as an entire novel in first person, I'm not quite sure if I'm capable of that. Um, present tense, I don't know if I would be willing to touch with a 10-foot <laughs> stick in um, novel form. Uh, maybe in short story, I might play with it a little bit more. It's just that novels are such a commitment and you really need to be comfortable um, with what you're doing and know what you're doing. And so, yeah, I don't know. Even with the short story, I want to try and expand it into a novel novel length. I don't know if I would be able to stick with first person. So even that's a big deal for me. Uh, Melinda, you're you have uh, absolutely nailed uh, the uh, uh, transparent thriller prose. Uh, 
that just kind of like puts us in the in the movie theater going duh oh my god the birds fell it's it's bad <laughs> thank you uh, I, was that did that uh, happen by 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 purpose on accident and also since uh, both of you I guess are, are writing uh, YA novels although to tell the truth um, hearing them it wasn't apparent to me I mean I, it, and so I'm wondering because they weren't first person present tense <laughs> well it's because they didn't say fuck a lot oh <laughs> <So>. <laughs> hey this is the first book <laughs> oh okay well uh, given that I'd like you to maybe also to talk about the decision to that this is that kind of novel and mm. how that made you parse your decisions as a writer. Okay, uh, well, this book was definitely a different in voice from and style from my first two books, which had a much more old-fashioned fairy tale, long sentences, complicated words kind of feel. So this was very much boom, boom, boom. I wanted it to have that transparent thriller feel. Mm -hmm. And at the same time, um, it didn't feel quite right to do, go completely that way. I wrote the first draft and it did feel very transparent to me. And I was talking to my editor about it and I thought, to, and, I, and I told her, you know, I feel like these sentences are like too short. <laughs> There's some rhythm that's not right. And I had to go back through and, and um, layer in more mood because a lot of the times in that very transparent thriller style, um, you don't get too much mood and I wanted more depth to it so the beginning of the book is very fast and it's only after um, you kind of get into the story that I think you start to feel more of the surrounding mood and that was very deliberate on my part it was a challenge to learn how to do because it was so different from my previous books but um, I like a challenge so it was really fun for me and since I have written um, after I wrote Adaptation, I also wrote a couple of other short stories experimenting with style and voice. I did a first-person present tense short oh story, gosh. and that was a weird experience because I kept slipping into third past. <laughs> but um, it was fun. The thing with the first-person present is that you really have to be kind of an actor. You know, you mm -hmm. have to talk in the, in the voice of that character. And if you don't know the character that well, it's really hard. <laughs> so it was fun, but it was a challenge. And I also wrote another fairy tale like story um, in an anthology that just came out at the end of August called Foretold. And it's a, it's a fairy tale called One True Love. And it very much took the whole voice I used in Ash and Huntress, very old timey, formal third person. That felt so comfortable to me. It was so easy to slip back into that. And I was like, wow, this is great. This is like the easiest story I've ever written. <laughs> but um, so um, it's really fun. I enjoy trying on different voices. I think in terms of YA, um, I don't know about you, Cindy, but I just, I kind of write the, the, the story the way I feel it needs to be written. And I don't really think about it as, mm -hmm. as YA. Mm -hmm. um, I think because both of us didn't, start out thinking we were going to write YA. Mm -hmm. So I just kind of wrote the book. And the editor looked at it, or my agent looked at it, and they're like, yes, that's YA. Mm -hmm. So I've never really tried to write in a YA style. Mm -hmm. I feel like there is a YA style that is pervasive among most YA bestsellers. Mm -hmm. like, I wouldn't have guessed it. yours was YA until you said it, to be honest. Well, that's <clears> Nor yours. 
<laughs> so that I mean, yours is particularly dire. I thought. <laughs> <laughs> There's lots of dire things in, in YAM. Come on, yeah. teenagerhood is like the most dire time of your life. Yeah, that's everything true. is going wrong when you're a teenager. <laughs> yeah. Well, no. the, yeah, I'm sorry. Go, no, go ahead. That YA thing. Um, I think that young adult now is so different than you know when Melinda and I were reading it, and even more different than you know beyond the 80s and 70s. I mean, it's just a huge booming thing now. And like Melinda said, I wrote Silver Phoenix thinking it was straight adult fantasy because I read fantasy and it was, you know, princes and, you know, the chosen hero. And they're 15, they're 16. (laughs) I mean, they're teenagers in these adult fantasy stories. So I didn't think anything of it. And it wasn't until I began querying. And there is very few, um, you know, top agents in speculative fiction. And when I query them, you know, one of the major ones rejected me and wrote back and said, are you sure this isn't young adult? And I went um, to my little querying page thing, research, and I pulled up all the agents that were young adult, which were like a lot more than the fantasy and science fiction agents. And I was like, yeah, sure, it's young adult. (laughs) So I went ahead and I queried all the young adult agents and, you know, None of them blinked an eye, and the editors who read my, you know, novel and that liked it, none, none of them questioned that it was young adult. And there are sexual elements in my book, and I'm very straightforward about it. But, you know, sex, drugs, rock and roll, you know, suicide, all those kind of things are in young adult fiction now. So I don't think that and in young adult lives. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, and they're actually being Much written to about. Much their parents' regret. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. Yeah, so I think that, um, and especially in fantasy, the line is very much blurred, like something like Kristen Kishore's books, which are young adult here, Graceling, A Bitter Blue, um, Fire, they're abroad being sold as adult novels. Mm-hmm. So it's mm-hmm. very, very much blurred for fantasy. <clears throat> Roz, you have... Uh, your prose is a classic British style. I could read. I, I could hear that. I could read that and just absolutely know that you are a British writer. I think there's something, and that's uh, something I really love. I, I I absolutely love British writers. And I don't know what the heck it is. I, I don't either. <laughs> I mean, in fact, it's partly that. There, yeah, yeah. There's that. Um, but. <laughs> The distinction between the prose I'm writing now and the prose I wrote in the stories I published in the early 90s is partly that I've spent a large chunk of the intervening years, and particularly the years when I was rather slowly writing what eventually became rituals, um, that I spent vast amounts of that time watching movies and watching television shows and writing quite close readings of Buffy and Battlestar Galactica and Nip Tuck and uh, American high school movies. Um, and I'm sure I come ac- I'm a totally British writer, but I've learnt a lot from American dialogue. And I hope that my writing is a bit less horribly English than the, uh, than the short stories I was publishing in the 90s, which I find now a little stylistically constipated. (laughs) Um, But another thing that's affected the way I write, because I was worried about that, was I just have one or two very long-suffering friends to whom I read everything aloud. And it's one of the ways I force myself into a schedule of, uh, is just having a couple of unemployed friends who have nothing to do and who are perfectly prepared to have their day broken by me reading the previous day's thousand words. And 
reading aloud is a wonderful exercise because anything that's dud you catch with embarrassment. Mm-hmm. And of course, it's something I also do with with my poetry. Is is just mm-hmm. read it aloud to people, read it aloud to myself as mm-hmm. well, because it keeps you from writing over long sentences. Because mm-hmm. if you can't if you can't read it e- aloud easily, then people are not going to read it easily on the page. Mm-hmm. Um, because my besetting sin was sentences that took up half a page and I've learned not to write them. (laughs) I think it's uh, this is a good time to see if there are any questions from the audience. Are there any questions from the audience? She's Um, asking why you asked. How do you know she's straight? (laughs) And then it says she meets the mysterious Amber. (laughs) (laughs) I just want to question you should always question is anybody straight (laughs) how do you know that unless they've told you (laughs) she's white because she was white Um, I'll just say something about white Um, in the 1980s I I spent time in Asia so I did a series of fantasy novels uh, set in Asia, and and the publisher at that time encouraged, urged, said that I should always have a um, a, a a white, a, a you know, a Howley, a Caucasian, a Gaijin protagonist that the reader that the that the um, American readers could identify with. So. Um, to take that for you know that was that was back then. Uh-huh. I think things have evolved mm-hmm. since then, so that mm-hmm. maybe you don't need um, a, a the viewpoint character be, to be white. But back in the ni- 1980s, that was that, mm-hmm. that was yeah. Well, my I want to ask you know um, why why would you ask why she's white? Because of, of your previous work, and also just something that I read Jim Hines' thing, Jim Hines's thing mm-hmm. and I just told a story, and I made the main character white and straight, because I'm white and straight, and I was thinking about, why did I do that, besides mm-hmm. just because I am, and so, and I was actually kind of surprised, I was thinking, because that, having read your earlier work, I would not have expected that, and so, and like I said, I haven't read it yet, mm-hmm. I just read the, the, the thing, so I was thinking, oh no. I think that sometimes there's a perception that, um, Writers of color might be expected to write characters who are also of color, and as a writer of color, I like to write whatever kind of characters I want to write, and I feel that I have a right to do that. So, you know, there are many different characters in this book in addition to the main character, and um, I think that it's a really fun cast of people. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. We have another question over there. Red hair. <laughs> I think that's right. Publisher and also somebody with 18, about to be 18, published novels out. I have one that did not sell for 10 years, it's just to show you that the boot can be on the other foot. Um, because at the time, unlike you, I don't like plot. I have characters and I put them on a road and they take a journey. And the story evolves around them. And from that perspective, the character is the most important thing. Everything that happens is because of who the character is. I don't own the characters. They tell me. Mm-hmm. Um, at the time, I wrote a story called Still Life for Devils, which 
was a horror story in San Francisco. And the way I happened to see those characters were, um, this was a police chief and his sister, and his sister is an artist who can walk into her own work. And I happened to see them as black. That's who they were. That's who Cass and Leo were. My agent at the time, very reputable agent, and my publisher at the time, were absolutely horrified. You're a white woman. You, you can't write black characters. You'll offend the community. Um, does that mean that I should not write male characters? <laughs> Am I going to offend guys if I put boys in my books? So it, it's, I think that that particular perception and that gestalt is, is, it goes across the board. That particular kind of, of literary or creative bigotry is everywhere. You're not the only sufferers. Yeah, um, for those of you who don't know, Melinda and I um, put together the diversity in YA tour last year in May, and it was because we happened to both have Asian-inspired fantasies out um, in young adult around the same time, and we literally can count on one hand how many you know Asian-inspired YA is out there. So we thought, you know, we kept joking, let's go on tour together. And, <laughs> and then we finally made it real and we thought diversity. I mean, there was so much talk with race fail online and, you know, whitewashing covers and why is everyone white and straight in the world? And, you know, we just wanted to, it's race is so difficult to talk about. Everybody gets up in arms and it's a very sensitive topic. I mean, it's one of those things that it would serve better in a fantasy novel <laughs> because mm -hmm. it's just one of those things. And Melinda and I just wanted to celebrate. We didn't want it to be like angry or why is it like this? And you know, we felt that um, it was worth celebrating that there were two Asian inspired novels out in young adult. And um, you know, I do remember one of the biggest things was at Sirens when uh, Melinda was leading a roundtable on LGBT literature and she expressed her frustration about the lack of main characters that were gay in young adult books and Delia Sherman, remember what she said? And she was like, do you even realize everything she had to make it contextual, like, uh, you know, like there were no gay characters. She had to kind of just <laughs> pretend like, oh, look, they looked at each other. Maybe they were, they were lovers. Like she was like, you don't even understand. We would not even be having this conversation. She said, you don't understand how much you've moved forward. But of course, me and Melinda coming in saying, oh my God, look at this, you know? <laughs> I mean, of course, when you see something that doesn't seem right, you want it to go immediately from nothing to it should be like this and it's all rainbows and magic. And it's not. It's very, very challenging. I mean... Well, this is the fantasy genre. It is all rainbows. <laughs> <laughs> when it comes to being more inclusive with diversity, it is very, very challenging. And Melinda and I actually wanted to include white authors specifically who wrote diverse characters, straight authors who are, you know, able to be willing to write gay characters and not of their own experience. And all the writers that come out, I want to do this, but I'm so afraid I'll get it wrong. I want to do this, but I'm so afraid somebody's going to call me out on bullshit or my privilege or whatever it is. But... Um, all I have to say is I get accused of getting it wrong. I get accused of being too Asian, not Asian enough. You know, I mean. Me too, it's great. Right? You can never win. You can never win. And the only thing is that, you know, if you're writing outside of your own experience, do the research. Make sure that you get people of that group that you're writing about to read and beta for you. And make sure, I mean, just it takes extra steps but it's worth it. And there are publishers that aren't as antsy about, you know, publishing 
you know, white authors who are writing from a black point of view or whatever it is. And I think it has moved on, but it's still like baby steps and it's a f we're, we're far from where we want to be. But, you know, hell if I stop trying, so. <laughs> well, it all goes back to being experienced yeah. liars. Yeah. <laughs> as long as you can tell the lie good enough, people are going to believe you and that's yeah. that. <laughs> I mean, the point is, Mara can't be white. Mm -hmm. She's an archaic woman from Mesopotamia. A number of the people she's known for thousands of years are archaic <laughs> people from Mesopotamia. Um, Jehovah and Lucifer, for example. <laughs> because, um, and Hecate, they're all from roughly Mesopotamia. Yeah. They're all thousands of years old. They all have brown skin. Mm -hmm. Periodically, when they're dealing with the 20th century, this creates minor issues mm -hmm. when they're moving among civilians. Mm -hmm. um, if you're looser, that's probably less of a problem. There's not really any other way I could write those characters than in terms of people who are themselves, you know, who find it slightly amusing that, that there are all these blondes around now. <laughs> um, They're all fake blondes. Yeah, exactly. Um, Emma, on the other hand, had to go, I mean, you know, because Emma is much closer to my own experience, mm -hmm. she had to be white. Mm -hmm. At the same time, I also wanted to write a book in which both protagonists were queer as fuck. <laughs> um, there are also trans... I decided not to write from a trans perspective in this book, partly because I have a trans novel, which I never sold back in the night, back in the 80s, though there are a couple of major trans characters... There are some minor trans characters who appear in Volume 1, uh, one of whom is a very major character in Books 3 and 4. Um, but of that, no more, because there are some big reveals to be <laughs> still to be written. <laughs> we have another question. A question for Ross. So did Mara show up at Nick Clegg's doorstep before he decided to throw in with the Tories? I wish. <laughs> <laughs> Oddly enough, one of the, the, you know, the biggest fans of this work in beta reading is a Lib Dem to whom I have a lot of difficulty speaking half the time. <laughs> Which just goes to show there's no accounting for these things. More Right there. Sir Ross, you mentioned your um, discomfort with some of the issues in class, um, but your reading um, had an element of playful menace in it. Um, and I worked in the city of London for two years, mm -hmm. um, and there were a few lords on the training floor, and I came to recognize Playful Menace as a characteristic of upper-class testosterone. Um, <laughs> it's something that Emma says at one point very early on when she's dealing, before they become close friends with um, her companion, Caroline, uh, is that you have to move among these people and you have to f adapt, you have to adapt to them. I mean, as a working class scholarship kid who found myself at Oxford in the late 60s, I learned a lot about passing. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. As, as, I've be, as I've been known to say, sort of, you know, once you've managed to change class, changing anything else is pretty much of a doddle. <laughs> uh, 
but yeah, it's but it's also a terribly effective way of of creating automatic creating suspense. Um, you'll see when uh, when we, when we get to Emma and the elves and the vampires and the and the rather cute vampire trustafarian princess <laughs> who's chasing her around the Wigmore Hall with lust in her eye. Do we have any more questions from the audience? Well, now I have one more question. At least uh, you just mentioned a word. I think that is absolutely true of all your stuff. It's suspense. All of your narrative, even each brief one, may all of them made me wait. What the heck's going to happen? So I'd like you to all talk about uh, creating that. And yours is like you're, this. You're reading halfway through the novel, mm -hmm. so suspense is no longer necessarily something to grab. Some I mean, it's not something that you need. Yeah. Like uh, both you two are reading from the beginning. Your beginning, mm -hmm. yeah. So you want to grab. You want to engender that from the beginning. You want to get draw people in. But I think you all did that really well and in very different ways. And maybe each of you would just touch on how you did that. <laughs> or, or, or how, do you do you know? Or did you did it just uh, happen automatically? A lot of it. I mean, partly because I know when I write, I know where I'm going. I don't know how I get there. Um, a lot of what appear to be incredibly closely plotted sequences in rituals. I was winging. I mean, the suspense comes from, how the hell am I going to solve this? I mean, the whole Atlantis sequence in particular, I had very little idea of where I was going, though in fact it reads partly because I did some revision, but mostly because uh, I just was caught in blind terror. It, re it reads as if I, I planned every single stage in an incredibly anal way, and I really didn't. And that feeling of, how do I get out of this, is a great producer of suspense in the reader. <laughs> <laughs> suspense in the writer produces yeah. suspense in the reader. Making That's a, it up. Uh, it's it's an age-old formula, yeah. Melinda, yeah. well, I, I thought yours was, I mean, you know, I'm ready to, to steal this book that's sitting here on the <laughs> and find out what the heck goes on, and, and you're going to have to send me a PDF of the manuscript for <laughs> part two. So uh, tell us. Well, I um, started the first full-length book with no pictures, that I read by myself was The Secret in the Old Lace by Carolyn Keene, which you will guess is a Nancy Drew mystery. And I spent the next like four years of my life reading every single Nancy Drew mystery there ever was. And then I started reading all of Agatha Christie. And I just have always loved suspense novels and mysteries. So I've been reading them my whole life. And I think that there's, I feel like I've kind of absorbed it yeah. <laughs> through reading hundreds mm -hmm. <laughs> of suspense novels mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. I can't I, really tell you how. Yeah. <laughs> One of my favorite, I mean I have a sort of mental corkboard, I mean I don't actually have an ac actual corkboard with things pinned on it, but I have a mental corkboard and one of the, the great truths about writing is Raymond Chandler's when you've no idea what happens next, have a guy come through the door with a gun. 
I do that sometimes. <laughs> well, not necessarily a gun, often something much nastier. Yeah. I, yeah, so I just, I read a lot of, I've mm -hmm. read a lot of suspense novels, and I think that there are little tricks people can do, but mm -hmm. when it comes down to the writing of it, it becomes very instinctual. Mm -hmm. I, I write it the way I, you know, I don't know. Yeah, yeah. That's not a very good answer. No, no it's a great no. answer. You write it like you feel it. I mean, that's... It's suspenseful, right? Yeah. 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 Keeping yeah. us in suspense about how you create suspense. Oh, that's... Uh, I think that, um, I, like I said, I'm very intuitive as well, and as writers, we have to read um, very extensively outside of what you like to read, outside of your own genre. Um, that's how you learn, and you learn from reading all sorts of writers in all different, like I love fantasy, but I'll read contemporary and mystery and thrillers and horror, which I've been reading a lot of. And you learn with reading. You, ha If you're not reading, you're not going to be a good writer. You have to read and learn. You learn from the crappy writing from other authors. You learn from the exquisite, holy shit, I can never do that myself kind of writing. You always learn. And um, I think that also for our generation, especially when you were saying that you watch telly and films, mm -hmm. and we a lot of the novel writing now, um, and especially the how-to books, are very much based on movies That's and, true. and television and, yeah. you know, uh, one of my uh, critique group friends is from um, the script background, and her dialogue is just pow, pow, pow. She is so good with dialogue, and that's because she was doing, you know, script writing. There was not any nonsense there. You have to be, like, on. And I think I do write in scenes. So in scenes, you don't think of the entire novel. You think about the scene. There's a beginning, the middle, the end. And the whole thing has, it has to be interesting. Every scene has to be interesting. It doesn't have to have an attack like that, but something has to happen. You know, a revelation or a question is raised. Um, and it doesn't have to be exciting for it to be a page turner. And I think that I'm intuitive like that as well. I mean, I think I've learned from reading, you know, my contemporary friends and reading from authors that I've admired that have gone. And so I think that we kind of just soak it in like sponges. <laughs> well, that was great. Ladies and gentlemen, I think it's time to wrap it up and send these ladies out to sign your books. And let's make this an extinction-level event for the books out there so all the books in the piles move into your hands and take them home so you can read them and enjoy the hell out of them. Thank you for joining me. We've had with us Roz Caveney, Melinda Lowe, and Cindy Pond. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.